Hello, everyone. Welcome to Bible Quest. This is the Wednesday edition, and Jeff Smeltzer, you'll take it away. Good afternoon. This is Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition, and I'm Jeff Smeltzer in Exton, Pennsylvania. Uh, we don't have Joe Works with us today, but Chase Byers is certainly here today. And in just a moment, we'll have Michael Zhang back with us for the third week. I think he this will be the third week he's been with us, third or fourth. Um, and uh, we'll say more about that in just a moment. But uh, we're going to be continuing our study in the Book of Acts. This is Bible Quest Wednesday edition, and I'm Jeff Smith. Whoa, what was that? Uh, Drew had his sound on. That's okay, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Very good. All right, Chase. Uh, so we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 26. And I think today, let's just jump right in to chapter 26 and verse uh, 24. Here's here's Michael Zhang. Let me, uh, let me uh, say hi to Michael. Michael? Hello. You're, you're, this will be your last week with us, uh, I think, right? Yeah. All right. Um, it's been good to have you the last couple of weeks, two or three weeks. I think this is the third or fourth. Do you remember which fourth. it is? Fourth? Okay. All right. So we're going to uh, jump in. Chase Byers in Fishers, Indiana. Why don't you kick it off and start in verse 24 and take us down through verse 29. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, You are out of your mind, Paul. Too much studies dri driving you mad. But Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. For the king knows about these matters, and I can speak boldly to him. For I'm convinced that none of these things has escaped his notice, since this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Agrippa said to Paul, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? I wish before God, replied Paul that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. Okay, so Festus is the, is the governor. He's in the office that Pontius Pilate had held at one time, and more recently, Felix uh, was the governor. And, and some translations are going to say governor, and others are going to say have other terms that are more accurate, but just to make it simple. Um, and then, and then this Agrippa, King Agrippa is one of the Herods, right, Chase? Yeah, that's right. And, and he is king. And, uh, and so at this point, uh, Festus, uh, he's dismissing Paul, you're crazy. And we talked about that a little bit last week, but Paul turns his attention to Agrippa. Why do you think he does so? You know, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, could it be because he's he's already kind of had his time with Festus, so now he he might see something in Agrippa. But we also know one of the things about the Herods is that they have their Jewish sympathizers. I mean, one of the things Paul says, um, I'm missing it here uh, in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Right. And so there's right. something that they have in common there that that Paul yeah. seems to be drilling down on. Paul thinks that it is a foundation laid with Agrippa. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Felix, the former Roman governor that, who, who had custody of Paul, uh, he knew something about the way because he'd married a Jewess. He'd married a, a woman who was a Jew, Drusilla. Felix, uh, Festus doesn't really seem to have a whole lot uh, of insight about this. Doesn't seem to care a lot. But Agrippa, as you said, he is, he, he, he represents himself as being of the Jewish people. And he, he does, as Paul says, believe the prophets. That'd be the Old Testament prophets. So Agrippa said in verse 28, and this we want to talk about for a minute, 
This translation says, with but little persuasion, thou wouldest fain make me a Christian. How does it read in the translations that you two have? Michael? I have ESV, and it says, um, and Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Yeah. And then Chase, what do you have? Are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? Yeah. And so you can see there's a couple of different ways you can take that. By the time we get to Chase's translation, it's easy to see it as a like a, a rhetorical question. Like you, you don't think you're going to convince me with such a, you know, uh, brief argument, do you? Um, but then others have thought, no, he was he was saying sincerely, you are almost about to convince me to become a Christian. So what do you think? Do you think he was almost there, or do you think he was saying dismissively, you're not going to talk me into being a Christian with such uh, a brief argument? I think perhaps it's, I, it may be a, a neither, actually. I get the impression that he's like overwhelmed, like, I need more time to think about this. No, that's just my, my impression. And in my um, translation, there is a footnote that says, is like an alternate translation which says in a short time you would persuade me to act like a christian exclamation point at the end okay yeah yeah what you say chase so well first thing i was going to say is that was a joe answer that, that's something joe would give us <laughs> so that was you good. know it was. it was it really was um so I, I actually tend to agree with the way my translation does it i think it is a, a kind of off hat just a, a comment of Really, you think you're going to persuade me? And I, I think it's that way because you really don't see anything further from Agrippa after this. In verse 32, Agrippa comes back up and says to Festus, this man could have been released if, it, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. I don't think he really cares. Um, I think I think Paul put him on the spot uh, by saying, I know you believe in the prophets. And some people, they don't respond well to being, to, you know, having their, their feet held to the fire. And. I don't think Agrippa really appreciated this, and I think he's just kind of shrugging Paul off here. So that that's my take on it, but I realize there's different opinions on it. Paul's response fits well. You could probably read Paul's response a couple of different ways also, but it fits well with the idea that he thinks that maybe Agrippa is shrugging this off a little bit. Although I could see it fitting with Michael, your, your take on it also. But verse 29, Paul said, I would to God that whether with little or with much, not you only, but also all that hear me this day might become such as I am, except these bonds. Remember, they had gathered quite a um, an audience back in chapter 25 and verse 23. It had talked about great pomp and chief captains and principal men of the city all being gathered to, to hear this um, discussion and to hear Paul defend himself and make his case. Um, so Paul just speaks to all of them. I, whether it took me a few words or a lot, I wish I could convince all of you of this. And so that's the end of it. Uh, anything else before we go on verse 30? Mm -hmm. Michael, take us to the end of the chapter, the three verses there. Uh, three verse? Yeah, sorry. Uh, 32, 32. Got it. Then the king rose and the governor and and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn... They said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. 
<laughs> they could have figured that out a long time ago. Um, but I kind of think it's easy for them to come to that conclusion now because they it's it's out of their hands. They don't have to take the deal with the consequences of whatever they might decide about Paul. Um, what do you think? I mean, so why are they even talking to him? I guess I'm confused by that. Like, why are they talking to him if he's appealed to Caesar in the first place? Yeah. <laughs> but remember, so he's appealed to Caesar, so he's going. And yet Festus doesn't have a good reason to send to Caesar for why I'm sending this prisoner to you. Right. So, so the pretext is, I don't know what to tell them when I send him to Rome. So Agrippa says, well, I kind of like his case too. So they, they all come together. So, yeah. So that, that's actually kind of funny. So they just put in the, Drew just put in the comments for us. Apparently there was a question that came in. Why was it so important slash necessary for them to send him to Caesar? Yeah. And, and uh, I think Jeff just kind of spoke to that to a degree, but secondly, Paul appealed to Caesar and right. well, that was a right as a Roman citizen. Once you got so far up the judicial system would be to, appeal to Caesar to be able to it'd be, would it be comparable Jeff you know way more than I do about this stuff would it be comparable to going to like the Supreme Court like wanting your court your case to be heard there I don't really know way more than you know about it but I, that's the impression I get and it's just okay. amazing to me to think that everybody had the right to appeal to Caesar but in our system everybody has the right to appeal their case on up to the Supreme Court now the Supreme Court has the right to reject a lot of those and doesn't hear every case that gets appealed to them. Uh, so I, I, I assume it's kind of similar to that. Okay. Um, but he appealed to Caesar, so he's going to, and, and they have to send him. Mm -hmm. so, well, but it gets, well, it gets, they don't have to take responsibility for it then. You were going to say, right. I was going to say, before we move into chapter 27, uh, Drew also wanted me to be sure that we invite comments. We really do welcome those, even if we forget to remind people that we like getting them. So, if you have any comments or questions, keep those coming. And uh, if you're listening to this after the fact, we also love to get topic suggestions or questions from the text that we can address in next week's episode. So feel sure, free to leave those sure. in the comments. That's a, that's a good thing to encourage people to do. Fantastic. All right. So let's go to chapter 27 then. Um, you know, one, one more thought here. Mm -hmm. Every time I read this, I, I'm going, ah, now you say he's innocent. Why couldn't you have said that earlier? You know, but. The Lord is at work here. The Lord intends for Paul to go to Rome, and the Lord intends that this is the way it's going to happen. Um, and so, and, and we're we're going to see when we get into chapter twenty-seven, the Lord's hand in this. When they're going to be uh, um, in danger on the high seas, and um, and the Lord's going to speak to Paul and say, "No, you're going to be fine, but you, you've got to go to to Rome and, and stand before Caesar." So, all right, we'll get into chapter 27 now. Uh, I guess I'll read a little bit. I, you know what? Let me share a screen here. I'm going to put a, a map on screen. And um, so here's the Mediterranean world. All right, and, I can see that. And where, where we are right now is in Caesarea. That's where these conversations are taking place. And so we start in chapter 27, verse 1, when it was determined that we should sail for Italy they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners to a centurion named Julius of the Augustan band. A couple of things are interesting here. First of all, the Augustan band, the Augustan band would be 
the band of Augustus, who had been an emperor. This is a royal and imperial band. Mm -hmm. This would be maybe a special imperial guard that maybe was in Palestine for some special duty at the time. Yeah, my my translation just goes ahead and says, uh, Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion named Julius of the Imperial Regiment. Yeah. So this, this, I mean, he's not, it's not just some county deputy that's thrown him in the back of a squad <laughs> car. And, you know, I mean, this is a big deal. And uh, and then it, the, the fact that it says uh, we should sail for Italy, what does that tell us? Uh, that Luke is with him. I, I don't know how he weaseled his way onto the ship, but he did. <laughs> yeah. So, and in fact, let's go on verse two. Embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail onto the places on the coast of Asia, we put to sea Aristarchus, a Macedonian <laughs> of Thessalonica, being with us. Mm-hmm. So, so we've got Luke and Aristarchus accompanying Paul on this voyage. You know, Chase, every time you get pulled over for reckless driving and they throw you in the back of the squad car to take you down to jail, do you say, hey, can my buddy come along with me? And they put him in there too. Is that how that works? <laughs> no, no. Uh, for a couple of reasons, no. One, because it's never happened to me. But but two, even if it did, uh, no, I don't think you get to to take people on a ride along with you. Yeah, and I don't mean to suggest that Chase oh, is I know, a I know. driver. That's totally made up joke. Um, but it has been interesting to me just all, all through the book of Acts when Paul is arrested in the temple, he says, can I speak to the people? And, and the Roman captain, Claudius Lysias, lets him stand on the steps of the barracks and speak to the audience for a while um, and, and several things like that. But anyway, I do want to show you this. Um, so I'm going to, on the, on our map here that we have on screen, these things are apparently taking place in the fall of, of A.D. 58. So we're maybe 35, uh, 25 years, 25 years past or so, give or take, past the uh, crucifixion. And there's a ship of Adramidium that's ported here at Caesarea, and it's on its way to Asia. Adramidium is up here, uh, not too far from Troas. And, oh, I, um, and I didn't know that. Asia is is where this ship is headed. So it's headed back toward home. It'd be a cargo ship. So they're gonna they're gonna catch a ride on this ship. And the idea that that this Julius, this uh, centurion of the imperial band, would allow uh, some of Paul's friends to travel with them seems odd. But maybe it makes a little more sense if you consider this. Um, there's an account um, in Pliny the Younger of somebody named Paetus who is being sent to Rome by ship as a prisoner, just like Paul is, and his wife wanted to accompany him. And so she reasoned that since her husband is of consular rank, you will assign him some servants to serve his meals, to belay him, and put on his shoes. I will perform all these offices for him. So she's just assuming he would have people to go with him to take care of him on the journey. And so she's volunteering to do that. It's an interesting story because her request gets denied. But what she does is uh, she gets in a little boat and tries to follow along. If I remember the story, I don't think I have that note here on screen. Uh, But I think that's what she ended up trying to do. Isn't that kind of crazy to think about traveling with a bunch of prisoners, though? And thinking Especially about if what, <laughs> yeah. have their serpents. I mean, man, it's stressful for me to travel from my house to church with a toddler and you know a, a two-week-old. But but let alone, I mean, imagine 
Paul here with a bunch of prisoners. And mind you, he's probably in there with a bunch of prisoners who did things a lot worse than what he is being accused of. It does say and, certain other prisoners in verse one. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so, and then it, it'll talk about the other prisoners there uh, later once, once the shipwreck starts to occur. So the reason why I think it's important to set all this up is just to see God's hand all over this trip. Yeah. And we're going to see it more. Verse yes. three, the next day we touched at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go unto his friends and refresh himself. Mm -hmm. So they scoot up the coast just a little bit up to Sidon up here. And Paul gets to go off ship and go check out his friends and refresh himself. Mm-hmm. All right, how about we get verses four and five? Michael, you want to read that? All right. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. Okay, so they're going to come under the lee of Cyprus. So they're going to come... Uh, on the side of Cyprus that would protect them from the wind. And I believe that would put them on the north side of Cyprus. And Cilicia is up here in this corner under under the text. Uh, this translation says, from there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of, of Cyprus. Um, and yeah, then, my, my yeah, translation please. says the northern coast of Cyprus. Okay, northern mm -hmm. coast. Okay, so that, that we've got it right then. Mm -hmm. And and they did so because the winds were contrary. Right. Um, all right. So after that, they they arrive here at Myra. And then let's get uh, verses. Well, this gets to verse uh, six. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy. And he put us there in. So remember, there was a ship out of Adramidium, which had ported here at Caesarea. And they got in it. It was headed to Asia, but that's not, they don't want to stop there. They want to get to Italy. So now they get in a different ship. This ship is one from Alexandria. Here's Alexandria down here in Egypt, and it's ported here at Myra, and it's it's headed west the way they want to go. So they're going to grab that ship. You get a sense both of the commercial traffic that, that existed in that day and also of how you negotiated from one place to another. <laughs> you negotiated by means of, my, my grandfather used to hop on uh, train, train cars, box cars to get from one place to another, ride the rails. It's kind of like that maybe, <laughs> a little bit, not exactly. All right, how about we get verses seven through eight? Sailing slowly for many days with difficulty, we arrived off uh, Sindus. Snidus? Snidus, thank you. I can but, never remember when there's a CN, I always forget how to pronounce that. But but let's just, let's just since it says, um, sailing slowly. Watch the ship go slowly here. It's going to go very slowly. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Right, keep going. <laughs> and since the wind did not allow us to approach it, we sailed along the south side of Crete off uh, Salmon. With still more difficulty, we sailed along the coast and came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. So this is the island of Crete down here and the Cape of Salmon over mm -hmm. here. And here's Fair Havens on the southern side of Crete. So yeah. they're going to scoot down this way and come along toward Fair Havens. Yes. And, and then uh, you, yeah. Just a little detail. I think it's important to 
point out, Paul is going to write to a young man named Titus who is on the island of Crete going around preaching at various churches and appointing elders in those churches as Paul commands them. So that's a, that's a good little island to kind of backlog in your mind for Bible. Yeah, good. Good connection. All right. That, that's later on that he does that, but that's right. That is Crete. All right. So let's get verse 9 and 10. Uh, go ahead, uh, Michael. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because of the fat, uh, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Okay, um, so it mentions that the voyage was now dangerous because the fast was now already gone by. What fast is this? The Day of Atonement. Yeah, and and in this particular year, it's often in September, but if I'm thinking right in this particular year, and I don't quote me on this, but I, if I'm thinking right, it would have been in October this particular year. You start thinking about, um, the North Atlantic and how dangerous the North Atlantic can be, especially in the winter months and the late fall months. And so apparently on the Mediterranean, it's kind of like that. The, the seas get stormy and you don't want to be out there. And so they tried to get their sailing done before you got very far into the autumn. And so Paul is saying that, you know what, we should, uh, we should just stop here for now and wait out the winter because if we keep going, we're going to have some loss. Any other observations you want to make? Mm -mm. All right. How about we get verses 11 through 12? But the centurion paid attention to the captain and the owner of the ship rather than to what Paul said. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided to set sail from there, hoping somehow to reach Phoenix, a harbor on Crete, facing the southwest and northwest, and to winter there. It's funny to me that Luke even bothers to say the centurion listened more to the, how did you say it? The Mine says master. Does it say the pilot? Captain. Captain. More mm -hmm. to the captain than and to the owner than to Paul. And I'm yeah. thinking, well, of course, Paul's just a prisoner. And yet, Paul has had all these privileges as yeah. a Roman citizen to, you know, to speak. Uh, that was before they knew he was a Roman citizen to, to speak to the audience in Acts chapter 22 and to travel with companions here. And, and as we go through this story, he's going to have more and more influence. But, uh, but you yeah. know, uh, sorry, Michael, you go ahead. Oh, thank you. Um, I was uh, noticing that uh, this, this is a, a simple application, which is that the majority does not rule. It is what God says that rules. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, if we follow the majority, well, where are they going? You know, they're all the majority doesn't mean it's right. And also I was yeah. thinking of um, Rahab and the spies and how, well, it's just random spies from Israel, but she listened to them because she feared the Lord and the rest of the city fell, but her and her household. Uh, was able you to know, I like that. I never thought of illustrating that point from, from here, you know, follow not after multitude to do evil. It says in the book of Exodus, um, and we, we talk about not, not just assuming because everybody does it, that it's all right. And here's a good example. Everybody, not everybody, but most of them thought, yeah, we should go further. There's a better port, better harbor over at Phoenix. Let's go there. Well, uh, I'm glad Michael went first. Uh, so there's a brother in Christ. This is what I was going to say, uh, named Greg Gravitt, who I heard do a sermon once from Acts 27, kind of making that point. 
but more so from the angle of of we need to be turning our attention to God and what his people have to say, the wisdom they get from his word, more than we do other people when rough things are happening in our life. And he was making, uh, mostly making that, that point and application in regard to where we go to solve our depression and our anxiety, right. that, that the counsel from a man of God is worth a hundred times more than any worldly psychologist or anyone like that. Yeah. And I think this is a great example of that, where, where the world would look at Paul and say, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. A Christian would look and say, no, no, you need to listen to him as a servant of God. I've seen too many cases where somebody has a problem and it's a spiritual problem and it's a sin problem, but it's a serious problem. And so the trivial stuff, sure, we can handle, the church can handle it. But when it's a serious problem, we need somebody with special expertise. We need to, mm-hmm. you know, we need to step aside and let the professionals handle this. I grant you there's there's room for some professional insight in, in some cases that we deal with. But when something's a spiritual problem, I tell you what, the professionals of this world are not going to be a lot of help. Um, so, well, anyway, it yeah, is also amen. interesting here what Paul says in verse 10, and after making that point, uh, all three of us making that point, the fact is Paul actually didn't have it quite right here. Um, in verse 11, he's um, in verse 10, he says, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the lading in the ship, but also of our lives. That's not going to turn out to be true. And a little bit later on in the chapter, Paul, by revelation, is going to say the opposite. Um, and what it illustrates is that even an apostle who speaks by revelation, sometimes he, he could speak his own thoughts and he would make a distinction between what he thought and what came from God. And you'll notice there's no miracle vouching for Paul's words right here. Um, mm-hmm. So, so we'll, we'll, we'll see that contrast in a, in a few minutes. If not today, we'll get to it next week, but I hope we'll get to it today. Um, so uh, let's Okay. So let's do this. So you, did we read verse 12? Yes, we did. Right. Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. So, so let's then move the ship. We've got to get the ship going for Phoenix. They're going to try to make it to Phoenix. So they're going to start there's Phoenix right there and they're going to try to get there and then spend the winter there. But verse 13 says when the winds, when the South wind blew softly, a South wind would be coming out of the South. Uh, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete. South wind is what they want because they don't want to be driven southward down toward the North African coast. And we'll talk about why in a moment. So they just want a south wind. It'll keep them close. They can travel westward along the coast and get to Phoenix and stay there for the winter. So here they go. Uh, And then verse 14 is going to say, and I'm just going to read it from on screen here. Before very long, they're rushed down from the land coming across the island a violent wind called Eurocolo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. So they were trying to just scoot along the coast, but then here, all of a sudden the wind changes, starts coming out of the northeast, and it's going to drive them away from the island, drive them toward Africa. Running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. So what do you think the ship's boat is? A skiff, like, like the, like the um, that's what my translation says. We were barely able to get control of the skiff. 
So it'd be a little low, a little landing vessel, a little boat that they could hop in mm -hmm. and paddle to shore. And fearing that yeah. they so might, some, run, yeah, it would be something that would be easier to steer in theory. Easier to uh, to steer. Mm -hmm. I, th I think here it's the case is it's being towed behind them, and it. It, I think maybe I'm, I'm wrong, but I'm thinking it's being towed behind them, and they can barely get it in control. Is this being jerked around by the? Uh, okay, yeah, no, that that makes more sense. Yes, thank you. So yeah. then, verse seventeen says, after they had hoisted it up, so they're going to bring it up out of the water, and they use supporting cables in undergirding the ship, and so supporting cables undergirding ship. I'll put a quote on screen about that in a moment. But they were fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Certus. Certus, you'll see here on the map, Certus Major and the Certus Minor. We'll talk about those in a moment. But they're afraid they're going to run into the Certus, uh, the shallows of Certus. They let down the sea anchor or lowered the sails would be another translation. And in this way, let themselves be driven along. I think if you lower the sails, there's less for the wind to catch. The wind's still going to take you, but at least it's not going to be tossing you about quite so violently. Maybe. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So my translation says that they lowered the drift anchor. So I do think, isn't there a difference between like the main anchor and then a drift anchor? It's a little bit smaller, but it kind of allows you to continue to move along that without just being completely stuck. Yeah. yeah, I don't I don't know about that. That makes sense. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. All right. So. Uh, here's the Yeraklo, this northern, northeasterly wind that comes ripping, roaring down across the island, and it's just driving them south. So they're not, they're not getting to Fairhaven, I mean to Phoenix. They're driven away from Phoenix, and their concern was that they might run aground on the shallows of Certus. So Certus is something that was well known in, in ancient history. Uh, the shallows of Certus. This is from Strabo. Strabo was a first century geographer lived at the time Jesus would have been a, a young man and a child even. Um, and Strabo wrote all about the geography of the ancient world. And this is what Strabo said. He said, the great Certus, this would be the Certus Major right here, has a circuit of about 3,930 stadia. So if you, if you measure that around there, and I've done it, it works out fairly close to his estimate. And uh, also uh, a diameter to the inmost recess of 1,500 stadia and also a breadth at the mouth of about 1,500. So about 1,500 right across there. The difficulty with both this Certus and the little Certus, which would be over here, is that in many places their deep waters contain shallows and the result is that the ebb and flow of the tides that sailors sometimes fall into the shallows and stick there and that the safe escape of a boat is rare. On this account, sailors keep at a distance when voyaging along the coast, taking precautions not to be caught off their guard and driven by winds into these gulfs. Well, that's exactly wow. what's happening to Paul and his ship. There's another quotation. This is from Apollonius, Jason and the Argonauts, written in the 3rd century B.C. Even then, a baleful blast of the north wind seized them in mid-course and swept them towards the Libyan Sea. This would be the Libyan Sea. Nine nights and as many days till they came far within Certus, wherefrom is no return for ships when they are once forced into that gulf. So you can see there was wow. actually there was is almost mythical the 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 danger mm -hmm. of the Certus. 
and nobody wanted to get blown in there. So that's what's going on. All right, let's pick it up that's in really verse. Cool. Pick it up in verse eighteen, and let's get verses eighteen and nineteen. Because we were being severely battered by the storm, they began to jettison the cargo the next day. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. All right, so we had day one, and then day two, they they got rid of the cargo, and then day three, they're throwing over the, the, the ship gear, the tackling. So let's do this. First day, secured the landing boat. Oh, we didn't talk about undergirding the ship. Uh, the yeah, technique yeah. of frapping a ship, that is passing heavy cables under the keel during bad weather in order to reinforce provisionally a, a weakened hull is known from at least the first century AD and lasted as long as the wooden sailing ship. The most celebrated example is the time when St. Paul's vessel was struck by a gale and the sailors used helps to undergird the ship. Big straps, big cables to run under the ship and hold it all together. How would they get them under the ship? I don't know there. Surely they wouldn't go they wouldn't go in, would they? Jump off one, swim under the ship, pull it up on the other side. No, I don't think so. I think you just walk to the bow and drop it over the bow and then walk backwards with it. <laughs> I don't oh, know. Yeah, that, that I don't makes know. more sense. I but it took me a long time to think of that. I for a while was going, did they swim under it? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. All right. Um okay. Or or I, I guess if you yeah, if you if if your ropes are heavy enough or you have an anchor on it even and are able to drop it down the way your ship would be moving, it would wrap under it and you could tighten yeah. it up. Yeah. Yeah. And then maybe winch it across the top and secure it. Mm -hmm. Second day they threw the freight overboard. And then the third day they threw the ship gear, the equipment overboard. Okay. So that gets us to verse uh, 20 and let's go verses 20 through uh, let's go 20 through 26. I have Red a question Michael. first. Say what? I have a question first. Yeah. As would doing all that even do anything? Like you're making the ship lighter, but what what like uh what's the purpose behind that? So you don't yeah, I think if it's you're lighter, you're just easier to blow around the ocean. Yeah, right? you, you would think if it's lighter, it's gonna get tossed around more, but if it's riding low in the water because of weight. And if the waves are high and crashing over, you could get swamped to the point that um, you're going to sink just from taking on too much water. I assume that's the logic of getting rid of weight. Hmm. But I thought the same thing. Yeah, with, with less weight, you're going to be tossed around as a lighter boat, but at least you're riding higher. All right. Thank you. Okay. So let's go over 22 through... Um, no, 20, 20 through 26. You go ahead, Michael. Thank you. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not, set, and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now I urge you to um, to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For you this very what? night. I'm, let me interrupt you there. I said Paul was wrong earlier on. 
actually, he at this point does say they've already had injury and loss. And that's what he had said. The only thing that he's wrong about, I guess, is when he said also our lives. Mm -hmm. So keep going. Give me one second to find where I am. Verse 22. Yeah, now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run a run aground on some island. <laughs> so guys, good news. <laughs> Everything's going to be fine. The bad news is we are going to be shipwrecked first. <laughs> mm-hmm. but I think that's some good news for them, honestly. Why? Because they're, they're in the middle of the ocean and it says neither sun nor stars appeared. I think getting shipwrecked means they get to some land, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, better than being at sea. And they, they, yeah, let's get off this boat. Uh, but we do see, as you guys mentioned, God's hand in this, and God has a plan, and you're you're going to Caesar. And it, it even says, I, God has granted all those with you. Uh, in other words, they're going to survive with you. Um, so so Paul is trying, he's encouraged, and he's trying to encourage them. Anything you guys want to note in that section? Mm -hmm. All right, verse 27. No, nothing in particular. All right, so when the 14th night was come, as we were driven to and fro in the Sea of Adria, about midnight, the sailors surmised that they were drawing near to some country. All right, so the Sea of Adria, it's labeled on this Sea of Adria here. We think of this whole thing as the Mediterranean and the Aegean up here and the Adriatic over here. But in this account, and apparently in ancient times, uh, the Sea of Adria was this whole area here. And so they're going through this, and it says the 14th night. So for a couple of weeks, they're going back and forth, driven back and forth in the Sea of Adria, and they think they're near some land. Verse 28, and they sounded and found 20 fathoms. What does that mean, they sounded and found 20 fathoms? What does your Bible say? Mine says sounding. Uh, they, mm -hmm, they took soundings and found it to be 120 feet deep. Um, I don't know. So you That's take a, like ancient radar. Yeah, you take a rope with knots in it and you, you look, drop it over and see how many you, you see, you know, what knot is at the top of the water. And you pull it up and count the lengths that it went down and, and you, you can tell how deep it is. And so when they measured, they found that it was 15 fathoms, which you said was, what did you say that was in your translation? One of you, one of your translation interprets it as uh, feet. Da, da, da. verse 28. Found it to be 100, 120 feet. 120 feet. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so then uh, it's 120 feet deep. And then it says they sounded again. I'm, I'm sorry. That was when it was 20 fathoms. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm sorry. So it was 100, it was 120 feet deep and then it was 90 feet deep. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so in this translation, it says found 15 fathoms. So if it's mm -hmm. deep, and then it's not quite as deep the second time. What does that tell you? You're approaching You're land. Closer to land. You're approaching land. Yeah. So so they're excited. So fearing lest happily, lest perchance we should be cast ashore on rocky ground, they let go four anchors from the stern and wished for day. Mine <laughs> says prayed for day. Prayed for day. Yeah. They they just <clears throat> wanting the sun to come up. <clears throat> All right. 
Okay, so let's see here. So this is the land that they're approaching, Malta, but they don't know it yet. Um, so, yeah. Chase, how about you pick it up and read verses 30 through 34. Some sailors tried to escape from the ship, and they had let down the skiff into the sea, pretending that they were... Uh, yeah, pretending that they were going to put out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut the ropes holding the skiff and let it drop away. When it was about daylight, Paul urged them to uh, all take food, saying, today is the 14th day that you've been waiting and going without food, having uh, eaten nothing. So I urge you to take some food, for this is for your survival since none of you will lose a hair from your head. So notice that they're taking Paul seriously now. <laughs> when Paul... Uh -huh. All right. So, um, so uh, Michael, why don't you pick it up in verse uh, 35 and go through verse 37. Okay, and I'll have a question about the passage after, too. Okay. Uh, 35. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Okay. So that you get us that now we didn't know how many people were on this ship, but now we know that's a, that's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. what, yeah. what, would you, what was your question, Michael? Um, so back in uh, verse verse 31, so first of all, did the sailors who wanted to escape the ship lowered the ship's boat into the sea? And then 32 said the soldiers cut away the ropes of the boat. So does that mean the sailors escaped? No, as I, as I understand it, they were in the process of lowering the skiff, pretending they were going to put an anchor down, but they're actually putting the skiff down, planning to escape. And when they get called out and Paul says, nope, they got to stay. And so the centurion says, oh, got to stay. They just cut the skiff loose and let it fall into the sea and go its way. Uh, okay. So I wasn't sure whether the sailors were on the ship or not. And then the interesting thing to note that was that Paul, Paul knew what they were doing. And also Paul's statement that unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. But in some ways it could kind of be seen as a contradiction from his statement that there would be no loss of life. Yeah. Well, and that, that, that kind of just brings us to the ultimate question of free will versus, you know, God's sovereignty over. Ah, all that's this. a good illustration. God saying there'll be no loss of life. You do what I say. Everybody's going to live, but they have a choice and they could end up dying because they do what they want. Yeah, but it's interesting mm -hmm. how. Because like it says, uh, unless he's been staying in the ship, he cannot be saved. So if the people did um, escape, then that would suggest that. Paul's first statement wouldn't have come true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I, my takeaway would be Paul's first statement was conditional. You do what God says, and this is what's going to happen. You'll be okay. All right. Uh, that's I like that actually. I'm gonna I'm gonna remember that. It illustrates when we're dealing with Calvinism. Okay. So verse uh, 39. When it was day, they knew not the land. In other words, they didn't recognize it. They didn't know where they were. But they perceived a certain bay with a beach, and they took counsel whether they could drive the ship up on it. Uh, and casting mm -hmm. off the anchors, they left them in the sea, at the same time loosing the bands of the rudders 
and hoisting up the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But lighting upon a place where the two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the foreship struck and remained unmovable, but the stern began to break up by the violence of the waves. And the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. But the centurion, desiring to save Paul, stayed them from their purpose and commanded that they who could swim should cast themselves overboard and get first to the land, and the rest, some on planks and some on other things from the ship. And so it came to pass that they all escaped safe to the land. Okay, so that's about snakes on Malta. We maybe we'll talk about that next time. They've made it to Malta, or in the, my Bible actually is going to say Melita in chapter 28, verse 1. What does yours say? Malta. Oh, Malta. Okay, you guys are not old enough to remember this, but maybe somebody in our audience is old enough to remember this. When George Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, the first Bush to be president, uh, was president, and Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev was uh, president of, in uh, the Soviet Union, they had a, a summit at Malta, and actually they met just off the coast, each of them in their separate yachts. And then if I remember right, Bush got in a little boat to go from his yacht to Gorbachev's yacht. I may not be remembering that right, but I think that's what happened. And I remember it was stormy and the seas were being tossed, but that happened right off the coast of this island for what it's worth, historical reference. So in the next chapter, what we're going to find is um, Paul on the island of Malta and uh, what happens there. On his, And we'll finish up getting him to Rome next week. Okay, guys? Sounds good. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Then thank you all for listening to Bible Quest. And Lord willing, we will see you next week.